chapter 2. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedoms we have in Christ Jesus to make us serve as slaves. We did not give in them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved in you. As for those who are held high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They add nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, had also worked in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should continue to the Gentiles, and they were to the circumcised, as they, and they were to the circumcised. They all asked was that we should, all they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. When Cephas came along to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined with him in hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew. Yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it, then, that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish, follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth are not sinful Gentiles. Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith in Jesus Christ. So we, too, have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For though... For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave me himself to, for me, gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. You may be seated. 
There was, a, there was almost an applause for Julie. You can do that. <laughs> There's a lot of text, a lot to read. Good job. It's so funny, like how timid everybody was. I was like, mm. uh, Would you just pray with me and then we'll continue to move. God, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the gift of song, the voices that we've heard this morning. Thank you for the folks who invested in this community and who are heading off full of love and uh, to go do the same somewhere else. We thank you for your story. Story of rich generosity, compassion. We thank you even for this moment in Galatians 2 where there is a confrontation and a challenge, but it is one that revolves around the goodness, the love, the generosity, and the compassion of you. So God, as we hear these words today, would we hear that? That in generosity, you're trying to call us into something bigger and better than the life that we often live. That in love, you're trying to speak a word over us that would shape our sense of identity and connection. And that in your goodness, you're trying to create a place for us to belong. And so would we be a people who live that out and don't create barriers for others? Do you not add restrictions to ourselves? but instead trust you and live as though the gospel is true. So God, help us to hear, help us to live, help us to receive it, and help us to go from this place shaped by the, the gift and the generosity of you. In your wonderful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome everybody. Uh, my name is Johnny Morrison. I am one of the pastors here. It's good to have you. We are in a series entitled All of It Gift, and we began this series just last week, and what we're doing is we're looking at Paul's letter to the Galatians. And this letter is written to a series of small communities in what is now modern Turkey, and the reason that they are being written, and the reason that this letter is being written, is that in this small set of communities in the province of Turkey, a crisis has arisen on what is the gospel. Paul had originally communicated the gospel to these communities. He had been preaching it abroad. But over time, this central issue, this subject of our faith, this good news that is at the bottom of everything has become contested. And now there are different versions of it and different options that are being presented to the communities. And it is leading to these really radical ethical dilemmas in the life of the Christian community. Groups are beginning to arise and they're advocating for different ways of living together. Some groups are advocating that you have to do all of the things underneath Torah in order to truly belong to Christian community. And so Paul writes this letter to these small communities in order to call them back into the central good news story that is the gospel. But it's not so easy for him to do this because within this small community, people are, one, accusing Paul of not preaching the gospel, that he has somehow failed to communicate the gospel, or he's preaching a wrong gospel, and they're also accusing him of just being a lesser apostle, that he's not as important as the other figures. And so as Paul tries to address this gospel crisis, people are also undermining his very authority to address the gospel crisis, which presents just a really tricky scenario for someone to try to navigate. How do I call you back to this good news story while you're undermining who I am. So Paul writes this letter. And throughout the letter, even in today's text, you'll hear him try to defend his own authority to make sense of why he can do what he does and why he's saying the things that he does. But more importantly, 
Paul is concerned with talking about what the gospel is and what the gospel should do in a community. What are the implications of the gospel when it lands in real place and real time? What kind of community does it shape? What kind of new ethic does it form? What kind of new understanding of the world does it make possible when this story, this good news, touches ground in real people's lives? What does it do to us when the gospel hits the ground? Now, some of the things that we'll read about in the book of Galatians will seem strange and foreign to us because they are cultic. They are specific to Israel and to the Torah. They're going to debate circumcision and they're going to debate kosher laws. And those things are maybe interesting to those of you who are Bible nerds, but they don't necessarily impact your life directly. But as we unpack these very specific cultural understandings, I think what we will find is that the questions underneath circumcision, kosher laws, how you eat, how you gather together, the questions that are underneath those very specific understandings, those questions and those experiences, well, those are very familiar to us. And they represent a set of questions and experiences that we have all had. Because the question that is being wrestled with throughout the book of Galatians is, can we belong together? Can we do life together? Can we be united together? Fundamentally, is the good news of Jesus big enough for all of us to find a home in? Is the table large enough for us to sit together and to eat together? Is there enough room for all of us? And I think we all know that this question is in our own hearts and our own lives because it is not hard to look at the modern church or our modern family or our modern friend groups and to wonder, is there enough room for all of us in this thing? There was a study, we talked about this last week, from Yale exploring how people are experiencing their Christian faith today. And the phrase that they coined to describe the experience I thought was really helpful was fragmented spirituality. What people are experiencing when they experience their faith is fragmented spirituality. And the way they describe this experience is that you would read your Bible, you would look at the person of Jesus, and then you would have a dialogue with a friend, and you'd be like, how? Do we believe the same thing? You're looking at the same Jesus that, that I'm looking at? How did we get here? How did we find ourselves in this different, strange, foreign territory? How did our traditions and our histories and our narratives unravel so much that we're looking at the same story, talking about the same person, maybe even attending the same community, and yet coming to such vastly different conclusions? And that is creating a fracture or a fragmentation in our own hearts, in our own lives, maybe even more painfully in our own communities, in our own families, in our own friend groups. And that's exactly what's happening in the book of Galatians. People are looking at the same story, the same good news, and walking away with radically different conclusions, so much so that they're accusing Paul of not even preaching the good news anymore. So the question that Paul wants to address throughout this letter is, is the gospel big enough? Can that center hold enough to draw us into something shared, into something transformative, into something that can give us an imagination for life at this table together, despite all the things that would divide us, despite all the things that would create hostility in the midst of us? Do we really believe that in Jesus the walls of hostility have been torn down? Can it do that for us? So Paul writes this letter to talk about the gospel 
and to call us back to the center of this good news story. Because Paul believes that there is room for everyone at the gospel table. Some things might need to be challenged. Some things might need to be unearthed. But that there is room for us at this table. So last week we began this conversation in Galatians chapter 1. And we looked at Paul's kind of initial gospel invitation. And we described in that first chapter that the gospel is a lot like a dinner table. I'm going to keep using that metaphor all day today. That the gospel is very much like a dinner table. And here's what I mean by that. Paul gives us a very brief introduction to the gospel. That it's the good news that Christ gave himself for our sins. And that's a very simple sentence. It's a simple invitation. And it is like being invited to someone's house for dinner. If I have a dinner party and I invite you over, I might say, hey, come to my house. We're going to have some food and I'm going to open a bottle of wine. I'd love to have you there. And that very simple phrase is enough to encapsulate all the good news of coming to my house for dinner. I don't need to tell you that I'm a pretty good cook. I might, but I'm not going to tell you that in the first sentence. I'm just going to let you come in and smell it, you know? That phrase, come and eat, it, it, it it carries the beauty of the experience. I want you at my house. I want you to come and eat. I want you to be with me. You belong. That's enough, right? That sentence is enough. That simple message is enough. But if you've ever been to a good dinner party, then you also know that once you get to that dinner party, there's more than just eating happening. You get to that dinner party and there's probably a lot of good food on the table diverse set of options and sides. There might be starter cocktails and dessert. There might be rotating bottles of wine. And maybe even more importantly, there's seats all up and down the table filled with bodies. And the air is filled with stories and experiences and memories. But you don't talk about that necessarily when you say, come to my house for dinner. But if you don't have those things, have you really gone to someone's house for dinner? Dinner party includes both those things. It is simple and yet deep and wide, filled with food, filled with drinks, filled with stories. And the gospel is like that. It is a simple invitation, but when you actually get into it, it's laden with beautiful layers, stories, memories, history, and opportunities. And last week we looked at that simple invitation And today, we're going to kind of look a bit more at what is actually on the table, but maybe even more importantly, who is at the table? Who gets to sit at the gospel table? How do we get ourselves to the gospel table? And Paul is going to talk about this via a story. He's going to tell us a bit of a story. This is the other reason I think this table metaphor is helpful, because in Galatians 2, the crisis, the contention is all about a table. It's about who gets to eat together and what do you have to do in order to eat together and how does the church belong together in this moment? And as they fail to do that, as they fail to gather at the table together, Paul is like, this is a gospel crisis. And through this story, we can talk about what the gospel truly is, how big it is, and what it means for us. So today we're going to look at that moment. In Galatians chapter 2, if you have a Bible, you can go to verse 1 or you can just follow along. But Paul begins by telling us a bit of a story. And he's actually continuing the story from Galatians chapter 1, which is a bit his own story, his own conversion. But in Galatians chapter 2, he starts this story 14 years post his conversion. So quite a few years after Paul becomes a Christian on the Damascus Road. 
And before he's a Christian, Paul is a persecutor of the church. He's out there trying to stop the church from spreading. But then he converts and he writes this in Galatians 2, or Galatians, Galatians. Galatians is a new book I just wrote. (laughs) Don't trust it. Galatians 2, verse 1, he says this. Then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem again with Barnabas. And I took Titus along also. Titus is a Greek, Gentile, non-Jewish leader in the church. He said, I went there because of this revelation I'd received from Jesus, and I laid out the gospel that I have been preaching to the Gentiles. But I did it privately, just with the influential leaders, just the people who are kind of important. I laid it out to them to make sure that I had not been working or had worked for nothing. However, not even Titus, this Gentile believer who was with, with, with me, was required to be circumcised. So Paul has been preaching this story, this good news story about Jesus. He's been preaching it to Gentiles. And this leads to so many hard for us to understand, but monumental questions for the early church. Because for the early church, it's a community of people who are primarily Jewish. And they believe that Jesus is good news, but they believe that he's primarily good news for a Jewish people. That he's fulfilling the Old Testament law, that he is the Jewish Messiah. And that all the stories and all the hopes and all the promises are rooted in the restoration of national ethnic Israel. Now that means good news for the Gentiles. It most certainly does. It has huge implications for the Gentiles who are hearing this story. But most likely, those implications actually mean inclusion into national Israel. Becoming Jewish, the phrase that Paul will use throughout Galatians chapter 2, is Judaizing, meaning to take on the habits, the traditions, the rituals, the practices, the laws of Israel. Jesus makes it possible in their mind to become Jewish. That's the good news for Gentiles, but it's fundamentally still Jewish news. But as all of these Gentile believers, non-Jewish believers, begin to convert to Christianity and Israel is not nationally restored, early leaders have to wrestle with, what do we do with this? What do we do now that there's more Gentiles than there are Jewish believers? What do we do now that the story has spread way past Jerusalem all the way to Turkey and into Asia and into provinces of Rome and into Africa? What do we do now that there's churches so far beyond us that we don't even know where they are or what languages they speak? What do we do about that? What do we ask of them? What laws, what traditions, what customs do we impose on them? And Paul, the rebel that he is, is like, we impose none. Jesus is enough for Gentiles to convert to the faith. They don't need to do anything else. And so he is preaching that gospel everywhere he goes, that Jesus is enough. And after 14 years of preaching that message, which is a long time to wait for confirmation, but after 14 years of preaching that message, he's like, well, you know, I'll go ask people if this is okay. (laughs) So he goes to Jerusalem, tells this story to Peter, to James, the half-brother of Jesus, and to John, disciples, close friends of Jesus. And Peter says, we were all agreed. This is the good news story. This is the good news of Jesus, that Gentiles do not need to take on Torah. They do not need to do the Old Testament laws. Their story is not about becoming a part of Israel Something new, something bigger, some new community is being formed out of the people of Israel. In verse 6, Paul says this, 
the influential leaders did not add anything to what I was preaching. They heard the message, they heard the story, they heard this good news that is radically inclusive of the Gentile peoples because of Jesus, and they added nothing to what I was preaching. I love this part. He says, the influential leaders didn't add anything to what I was preaching, but whatever they were makes no difference to me because God does not show favoritism. Paul is just really throwing a lot of shade in this book today. He goes on, James, Peter, and John, who are considered key leaders. Again, even the word consider is like they're considered key leaders, but I don't care. They shook hands with me and Barnabas as equals when they recognized the grace that was given to me. So these influential leaders, these key figures, they conclude that Jesus is enough for Gentile believers. They don't need to adopt Torah to belong. They don't need to eat kosher. They don't need to celebrate the festivals. And the biggest thing is they don't need to get circumcised in order to belong to Israel, which Paul illustrates in this moment by saying not even Titus, a key leader, was required to be circumcised. Now again, it is hard for us to understand how monumental this moment is. We read it as like, oh yeah, it's fine. They just get over Torah. So it's just worth holding this moment for a second to talk about how monumental of a decision it is for the church not to impose Torah on Gentile believers. I think we think of Torah sometimes as a list of do's and don'ts. And Torah includes laws. most certainly does. But to think about it as a list of do's and don'ts so undermines the role that Torah played in the life of ancient Israel. For them, it's more like if you could take the Constitution and the Bible, merge it into one document, and then give it to a people and say, here it is, and then let them live with it for 10,000 years. Then you're starting to get close to how intense this document is in the life of this community. It shapes their identity, their sense of belonging, who they are. Israel has been exiled, conquered, enslaved, And this document holds for them so much of that identity-keeping peace. This is what defines us. This is what shows us who we are. This is what keeps other people, conquerors, nations that would seek to uh, integrate us. This is what actually keeps us separate from those peoples. It shows us we belong to God and that we are God's covenant chosen people. So decide not to impose this onto Gentiles is a big deal. That's why Paul's making such a moment of it in this story. He's saying, you need to understand everyone agreed with this decision. We were like, we're not going to impose Torah onto Gentiles. It's a big deal. And it's what leads to the crisis in verse 11. Paul's like, we've agreed. Here's the story. Here's what happens next. He says, but when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, because he was wrong. Once he had been eating with Gentiles, but then certain people came from James, we've now indicted two of the leaders from the previous story, Peter and James. Certain people came from James, and when they came, Peter began to back away from the Gentiles, to separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of the people who promoted circumcision, Torah, And the rest of the Jews who were in this moment with him, they joined him in this hypocrisy so that even Barnabas, my friend, 
was carried away into their hypocrisy. Now talk about the theology of this moment in a second, but it is so human. If you just think about it for a second, it's such a human moment. I feel like I can uh, have such empathy for everybody in this story. You can tell as you're reading it that Paul is angry. And he has every right to be angry in this moment. Just like a few moments before this, he's like, we were all agreed. We had a conversation. You said, this is what we're going to do. And then I show up, I preach the story, and then I look behind me and no one's standing with me. And not was it just Peter, and not was it just James, it was Barnabas. And Barnabas is the first Christian who really believes in Paul. So it would be such a deeply heartbreaking an isolating experience in this moment. You would feel so lonely to have been, like, I'm standing on my convictions and where are my friends? We can have empathy for Paul's frustration in this moment, but I can also empathize with Peter and Barnabas in this moment. Verse 12 says that Peter was afraid. So I think it's interesting because Peter is probably the most powerful person in that room. He's the leader of the New Testament church. He's in this moment, and yet he can still feel fear. And I think in some ways, like, of course he's afraid. Of course he is afraid. It is so easy in a room of your own peers to make a commitment to something. It is so much harder to live that commitment out when it becomes challenging. Especially when the issue is so close to you, when it is so deeply embedded into you. Since he was a child, Peter had learned that Torah made him holy and righteous. He had learned that this was the collective story that shaped his people and gave him identity and gave him a sense of belonging. Since he was a child, he would have celebrated the festivals of Torah. They would have been his Christmas, his Easter. Like Those are the festivals that give his community and the culture around them identity. Since he was a child, he had been told, you can't eat with Gentiles. That will make you unclean. You don't want to be unclean, right? But all of a sudden, here you are face to face with the other. You're experiencing the pressure of your family, Jews who are still holding to circumcision. Of course you would be afraid. And fear makes us do strange things. Fear makes us deny convictions. Fear makes us question ourselves. No matter how much we believe a thing, fear can still undermine your own conviction. Fear makes you act against your own conscience. So I have a lot of empathy for Peter in this moment because fear is such a powerful force. And I don't think it's hard to imagine all the things that Peter would be afraid of. You're afraid of compromising. You're afraid of losing your tradition. You're afraid of losing your influence. You're afraid of losing control. You're afraid of losing your identity. And I think if he's honest, I think if we're honest, and we look at the story, I think he's afraid of what the gospel means for him if it's real. It's good news when you're sitting in a room with your peers talking about it, but it is much harder news when the rubber meets the road and the implications of the gospel begin to form a community that you do not like. It is easy to believe that it's a good news to be in a room with people you don't like until you're in a room with people you don't like. It's easy to believe that it's good news and good ideas to throw a dinner party until people break your plates and dirty your house. 
It's easy to believe that something is good news until it actually begins to play out. And when it begins to play out, you realize what you can lose if that good news is true. It's still good news, but for Peter, there's some things that he might lose if this is really true. If Torah doesn't define his life, there's some things that he could lose. Under Torah, Peter's pretty important. Under Torah, Peter is pretty in control. Under Torah, Peter's circumcision, his biology, his gender, his ethnicity, they all actually mean that he gets to stand a bit closer to the head of the table and his seat is reserved for him. But if the gospel is true, then all of that comes under question and the whole table gets rebuilt and all the barriers and lines and distinctions that kept him in one place and someone else in another place, well, they start to come down. And if you like where you're sitting, that is uncomfortable. The gospel is good news in theory, but when it begins to cost us something or challenge the worlds that we've built or challenge the identity that we hold or challenge the communities that we want to protect, well, it starts to sound a little bit less than good news. That's why I have empathy for Peter. Even earlier in this passage, Paul says that people came into their group and spied on them to enslave them again to Torah. And I imagine if you were one of those people, you're like, I'm not trying to enslave you. I just want to have a conversation here. You sure about this? Like, you really know what this means? I resonate with Peter's fear because it is a fear that I feel all the time. It's easy to criticize Peter and to keep it at arm's distance, but it's a fear that I just know to be true. I am constantly afraid when I think about how little control I have over what happens in Jesus's work. This is an example of this. I hate when people don't agree with me. <laughs> if you don't agree with me, it starts to feel like a threat. It starts to feel like it could lead to something terrible. And this weird thing begins to happen in my brain, and I imagine this was true of Peter, that if people don't agree with me, if people don't act like me, somehow I have become a failure. Like I, as a pastor and as a communicator and as a persuader and as a theologian, like I've failed you, and that's why you don't agree with me. And that fear is rooted in all of these things that are somewhat legitimate and unlegitimate. I'm afraid of what that might cost us. I'm afraid of what might happen at Missio if you don't agree with me. I'm afraid of what might happen to my own identity, my own sense of belonging. I'm afraid of so many things. I was trying to name it this week as I was prepping this, and I was like, it just, it's like hitting so many things about me that it can switch what I'm most afraid of losing if you don't agree with me, if you belong for some other reason, if you don't have to adhere to my barriers. So I can resonate with Peter's fear. And it is a fear that I think is so insidious because when you live out of this kind of fear, you really believe you're doing the right thing. This is what makes fear in religious context so tricky to identify and to name, is that we often believe that we're doing the right thing, that the fear is triggering some true thing in us. Like that if I don't build barriers to belief and to belonging, then somehow I'll pollute the community. Or somehow something will be under threat. Or somehow something will be lost. And you can hear that in Peter, that if the Torah isn't defining what makes people righteous, then what could possibly be lost? 
Peter in this story, it's also important to say, Peter in this story, he doesn't believe that Gentiles can't be saved, which I think would also make it tricky, because Peter would be like, I believe everybody can be saved, you just have to do some stuff to sit at the table with me. Which makes it a trickier fear. It's sort of like if I threw a dinner party, and I invited you to the dinner party, and I was like, see, I invited you, you belong, but can we talk about what you're going to wear? You're going to wear that? And like, I mean, I'm a, I want you to come to the dinner party, but can we just like talk about like, like, what do you believe about some stuff? What are your politics? And what is your opinion about these ideas? You, you believe what? I'm going to place you by the loud chewers. <laughs> you can come to the party. You just can't sit right here because you believe these things or you're dressed in this way or you didn't bring the right belongings, but you're still coming to the party. Like you're still invited to be at my gospel dinner party. You're just going to sit with the Broncos fans and the loud chewers and the CrossFitters over there, and I'm going to sit over here. <laughs> just like I'm just going to try to offend as many people as possible <laughs> in one sweep. Gospel. Uh, and this is exactly what is happening in Galatians chapter 2. Peter and the Jews, they don't stop Gentiles from eating dinner. They don't stop Gentiles from being a part of the community. What they do is they say, Gentiles can sit here, and we're just going to go over here. Don't look. We're just going to sit over here and have a meal in this place. You sit there. We'll sit here, and everything will be fine. And when Paul sees this, this is what he says in verse 14. He wants us to understand how serious this is to him. He says, when I saw this, I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. Paul's like, this is a gospel issue. How you eat together, how you do life together, how you belong to one another, this is gospel. This isn't, this isn't just a click. This isn't just table manners. No, no, we're having a gospel conversation. And so I said to Cephas in front of them all, if you are a Jew, you live like a Gentile, not like a Jew. How is it you're doing this to people? You are out of step with the gospel. That word in line is Greek for, is the Greek word orthopedeia, which is where we get the word for orthodontia. You can understand straight or in step or in line. He's like, you are out of step with the gospel. The gospel is moving in a direction and you are not moving in that direction. You're acting as a barrier to where the gospel wants to go. You're walking the opposite direction of where the gospel wants to go. You are not in step with it. That's a heavy thing to say. By reimposing barriers on Gentiles, you are out of step with the gospel. By creating walls to belonging, you are out of step with the gospel. By forcing them to sit at a different table or at a different spot on your table because of what they believe, because of their gender, because of their ethnicity, you are out of step with the gospel. And here's why. Paul goes on to say this in verse 15 and 17. He says, you are out of step with the gospel and here is the reason. He says, Peter, you and I, we are born Jews. We're not Gentile sinners. However, 
We know that a person isn't made righteous by the works of the law, but rather through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We ourselves believed in Christ Jesus so that we could be made righteous by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law, because no one will be made righteous by the works of the law. Now, what Paul has just said here, we're familiar with if you've been in the church, but it is wildly offensive and disrupting. He's talking to Peter. He's saying, you and I, we were born right. We're born a part of the family of God. We're born into this covenant. We have the right ancestry. We have the right pedigree according to the logic that you're operating out of us. But that does not make us righteous. The other word you could use for righteous is it doesn't make us worthy of our place at the table. Instead, we come to this table the same way that everyone else does. The faithfulness of Jesus. Now this is good news. If you've not believed you were invited to the table before, but like we were just talking about, this is offensive news if you believe that you've worked hard to be at the table. And Peter believes that he's worked hard to be at that table. That those secret things about him, that identity, that gender, that race, that those things matter to getting him to the place of the table. And Paul is saying, that's not why you're here. You're here because Jesus was faithful. You come to this place the same way that everyone else does. Not through your own work, but through the generosity of Christ. This is a story uh, that Jesus tells as a parable in his Gospels that I think illustrate how offensive this moment is. Heather reminded me of it this week as we were talking through this text. And I haven't been able to shake the image in my mind, but Jesus in Matthew chapter 20 tells a parable about a man who owns a vineyard. And in that story, the man owns a vineyard. He needs to have people work it. So he hires people throughout the day to come and work the vineyard. And he hires somebody right at the beginning of the day, like 6 a.m., 7 a.m., And he's like, hey, that's how he talks. Hey, come and work my vineyard, and I'm going to pay you like one day's wage, one denarius. And the guy's like, dope, I will come and work your field. That's also what he said. So he comes and he begins to work it. And then the guy's like, you know what, I need more help to work my vineyard. And so the vineyard owner goes out at noon and he hires another person. He's like, hey, um, come and work my vineyard, and I'm going to pay you one day's wage, one denarius. And the guy's like, dope, I'm only going to work half a day. I'll totally take that deal. So he goes into the vineyard and continues to work. And then the guy does it again and again at 3 p.m., 5 p.m. And the conversation is exactly the same. Come and work in my field and I will pay you one day's wage. One denarius. For the person who started at nine, the person who started at noon, the person who started at three, the person who started at five. They all get the same pay. And as the day comes to an end, all of these vineyard workers, they come to make their wage, and the vineyard owner starts with the very last person hired, the 5 p.m. person. Pays him one day's wage. So the people at the very beginning who were hired earlier are like, oh, nice. That means we're going to make twice as much. Is that how math works? I don't know. We're going to make a lot more. (laughs) But then they don't. They're paid one day's wage. And this is what Jesus says in this story. He says, These who were hired last 
worked one hour. This is the folks who were hired first getting frustrated. They tell the vineyard, he says, those who were hired last worked one hour, and yet they received the same pay as we did, even though we worked the whole day in the sun. But he replied to them, friend, I did you no wrong. Didn't I agree to pay you one denarian? Take what belongs to you and go. I want to give to this one who was hired last the same as I give to you. What a phrase. Don't I have the right to do what I want with the things that belong to me? This is the phrase that I think is so fascinating. Or are you resentful because I am generous? And Missio, the answer to that question is, yes, I'm resentful because you're generous. I hate that. I work the whole day. What? Huh? Are you resentful because I am generous? And we all, I think, have to answer that question. Yeah. We don't want this thing to be measured by generosity, by faithfulness, by grace, or by the goodness of our God. We would like it to be measured by how much we worked, how much effort we put in, by the strength of our own hands, by the pedigree that we bring to the table. We want those things to matter. And the idea that God would be so generous that he would invite me and you and everyone else included is objectively offensive. And that's the gospel. The offense of the gospel is that all are invited, no matter how they believe about themselves, no matter what they think about themselves, no matter how much work they've done, no matter what they come from, no matter their heritage, no matter their story, they're all invited the exact same. And they're given the same place at the table, the same spot to belong, the same name, the same inheritance. The young son in the story of the prodigal son is restored to sonship the same way the older is who worked the field. There is no distinction. And that is good news if we are able to see that we don't bring much to the table, but it is always hard news when we are convinced of our own righteousness, our own worthiness, our own goodness, or when we're convinced that we bring a lot to this place. Missy, we are at the table not because we have worked hard, been born right, believed the right things, but because of the faithfulness and the generosity of Jesus. And the implications of this good news, well, they are massive, they are beautiful, and they're a bit terrifying. It is a bit terrifying to imagine what might happen if the walls are torn down and the barriers upended. It's beautiful news. It is good news, but it is also difficult news. I think that's why Paul reminds Peter of this moment. In that chunk of scripture I read from Galatians, Paul says this. He says, Peter, no one will be made righteous by works of the law. What he's saying to Peter is, is you think you bring a lot to this table. You think you bring a lot under Torah but you are not here because you are worthy. You're not here because you have worked hard. And you actually can't get here by working hard or doing the right things. 
One, that would be to impose on yourself a weight that you cannot carry, which is exactly what you're doing to the Gentiles. But it's also not how relationships work. You don't work your way into relationships. I'm not a husband because I mow the lawn. Like if I just mowed the lawn, I would be like a gardener or a weirdo. I'm in relationship because I'm in relationship, because I am so loved that someone pursued me enough to be in relationship with me. That's what makes me in relationship. I'm at the table because I was invited to be there. I'm in this place because God says I belong, because Jesus, out of his good pleasure, does what he wants with the things that he wants. And what he wants, Spice Girl song, is to be in relationship with me. (laughs) I got carried away. So Paul tells to Peter, Peter, this is not how relationship works. This is not the good news of this story. You do not need to impose on yourself this impossible law. You do not need to impose on yourself or others this way of living. You are here because you are wanted. You are here because God says you belong, and that's it. At the end of this chapter, Paul gives us this phrase that should remind you of what we said was the gospel last week. It's like his encapsulated gospel phrase again in verse 20 and verse 21. He says this, Peter, we live by faith. And I really like this. This is the common English Bible. It says, indeed, by the faithfulness of God's son who loved me and gave himself for me. That's why we're here. Peter, that's why you get to belong. It's why I get to belong. It's why everybody else gets to belong. We belong because God loved us, gave himself for us. And then he says this, so let's not ignore the grace of God. Because if we become righteous through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You're here by grace You're here because of a gift. So don't ignore the gift. Because if you do, you live like Jesus died for nothing. And I imagine that hit Peter like a bag of bricks. And he watched Jesus die and abandoned him once before. So to imagine he's doing it again by not loving Gentiles would hit so heavy. Paul is trying to invite Peter to live free to receive the gift, to live out of the gift, and allow other people to live out of that gift as well. Remember that Jesus gave himself for you. And that you are here because of him. Monsieur, as this moment is true of Peter, and as it is true of the Galatians, it is true for every one of us who are in this room. We get to come to the gospel table because Jesus loves us and gave himself for us. And if you have been told any other story, that was a false gospel. That's what Paul says. If you told any other story, that's a false gospel. If you've told yourself any other story, it's a false gospel. But it's also important to note, if you've told others any other story, that's also a false gospel. We all want to imagine ourselves as Paul from this story, but I think in fear we are pretty easily 
Peter. This is the good news that brings us together. We are here because God rescues us. And if we've told any other story or been told any other story, that is a false gospel. And it submits us again to yokes that do not belong to us. So, Missio, today would you receive this story, this good news of Jesus' gift of himself for you? that creates a place of belonging despite whatever you've done? Would you receive that even if that's really hard to hear? And know that the deepest truth about you is that you are deeply loved. And that's true even if you believe you're an achiever, even if you believe that you are worthy, or you don't believe any of those things. The deepest truth is the same. You are deeply loved. So in a moment, we're going to come to this table, which is a place that we gather every single week to practice gathering at the gospel table, to know that Christ has made himself available to us, so that we can belong. And as you do, and as you come to this table, would you just come with that image of the gifts of Christ in your mind, and would you wrestle with what other stories have you told or been told? Have you heard a different good news story that would say that you don't belong? Or have you told another good news story that would say someone does not belong? And as you come to this table, would you know that you are invited to let that go, to lay those down and to receive again and again and as many times as you need it? This good news story that you belong. Let's pray. God, I don't have a lot of words to pray. I just want to say and ask that we would hear the good news story of you and we would receive it. That we've received it a hundred times. That's so good. But would we receive it again? And maybe we've never imagined that it could be true of us, but would we receive it today? To know that in you we belong. The very best of us gets laid down in this moment, and the very worst of us gets laid down just the same. Older brothers and younger brothers alike are all invited to the table under the same auspice, your love. So God, would we receive that gift today? And would it disrupt us and challenge us and confront us, but more than anything else, would it call us home to be your beloved? God, we pray this in your name. Amen.